Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I have a special episode with Jake Chapman, and it's part of a special series that I'm doing, which is essentially a Crazy Wisdom book club, uh, where I reach out to somebody, ask them what they're reading, I read it, and then we have a conversation about the book. Today we talked about the book Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg. Um, it's a very mm, apocalyptic book about the state of our nuclear weapon here, both here in the United States and in other countries, and all of the crazy ways in which we regulate nuclear weapons in the government and all the problems that there are with it. Uh, I think you'll enjoy listening to this episode if you're kind of worried about the state of our nation and its existential threats and trying to figure out a way to do something about it. Um, and Jake has a lot of good ideas about the book. I, I like this, this, this podcast series because you can get insight into the book without actually having to read it, and you can also get kind of extraneous, extraneous knowledge that comes out through a conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please just find us on iTunes and give us a review. Um, reach out to me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III if you want to uh, talk with me directly about the episode. Really hope you enjoy it. Let me know uh, what you think. Thanks. Like thematic cohorts, and so this book was in my last cohort, which included a book called "Learning to Die in the Anthropocene," another <laughs> really cheery book, uh, a book called "The Planet Remade" about uh, climate change and geoengineering, um, and then a couple of fiction books. And I was basically trying to dig into the existential threats that we may be facing over the next ten or twenty years. Um, and think about how that might factor into my investment philosophy and thesis. Um, and so I wanted to like do a deep dive into uh, uh, into this existential threat that we're facing. And from this book, I, <laughs> I I was very much convinced that this is an existential threat, and that um, it is probably the one that is the easiest to solve of all the ones that are that are like well, in comparison to climate change. Climate change, as I was reading the book, climate change kept on coming into my head as like. Okay, but that's an amorphous thing to try to get China and Russia to stop producing CO2 emissions seems almost impossible. But it does seem possible to put pressure on leaders in order to change our nuclear policy. You, I, I would actually disagree with you on okay, that. Uh, so I think uh, reversing climate change and making the ecosystem sort of healthy and holistic again is probably a more challenging problem to solve. Uh. But putting a Band-Aid on the problem is much easier with climate change than I think it is with mm. nuclear proliferation and the nuclear postures. So this is like one of the other book I was reading in this cohort, The Planet Remade, talks a lot about nuclear winter, which is interesting because a lot of the same studies come up in both books. Um, but in The Planet Remade, they talk a lot about the ability to block out sunlight uh, selectively using sulfur dioxide that you can fly into the upper atmosphere and relatively inexpensively for like a few billion dollars a year, mm. we could reduce the temperature globally, mm. uh, which has a lot of other negative side effects, but like it at least makes me feel like we're not going to fry. Mm. Um, at a last case scenario, we could do this and then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a, there is like a emergency button we could ah, hit okay. and it's not great, but anyone could do it. Yeah. Any nation state could do it. Okay. Whereas disarm, nuclear disarmament is, uh, I mean, that requires a lot of global cooperation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And let's get into what we talk about with nuclear disarmament, because there were the whole book is called Doomsday Machine, and it's basically the idea that, contrary to public belief, 
each president has delegated the authority to launch nuclear weapons. Um, for example, somebody in Korea, in a base in Korea, if they thought that Eisenhower was, um, for some reason, incapacitated, could actually make the decision to not launch nuclear weapons on, on Russia. Uh, and so it's delegated, which means that there's a doomsday machine because if one of these delegated people can essentially start nuclear war because of this this first strike capability where um, every country that has nuclear weapons is always worried about an enemy attacking them with nuclear weapons before they can respond um, and essentially getting wiped out. And so this, this is like both created deterrence in the sense that our whole... Um, are we are now at peace for the longest time in history because people believe that um, if we start a war, we're going to get wiped out. Uh, so yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, what's your thought on this kind of doomsday machine and how we can kind of tackle it as a... Mm. Yeah, good question. I, so I guess we should start with the caveat that the book is written by Daniel Ellsberg, who is the author of the Pentagon Papers and was a nuclear war planner in the 50s and 60s. And it's not clear how up-to-date his information is. So a lot of what he talks about is about our posture and our command and control in the 50s and 60s. And it seems like it's highly likely that those things haven't dramatically changed in the intervening time. Uh, but we don't really know that, right? We just mm. were kind of making guesses. Um, and the so I guess in the 50s, knowing that a first strike could wipe out our ability to counterattack, right? Eisenhower delegated his authority. So there was some command and control redundancy. Um, but that created the scenario where there is not just one person's finger on the button. There are, you know, maybe dozens or scores or hundreds of people mm. who are American citizens who have the ability, if not the authority, to launch a nuclear weapon. And we know from our own posture that if we were ever to launch a single nuclear weapon at a major nation state mm -hmm. that they would respond potentially with a full-scale counterattack, which, mm -hmm. which is probably what we would do if the same thing happened to us yep. and so there's this potential for like a rogue actor to effectively end the world mm. yeah and that's <clears throat> essentially that's why we created this doomsday machine but and probably why russia also has a doomsday machine as well uh, yeah, another right. another theme in this book is this essentially the security clearances, which you just talked about, where there's just these maps of security clearances that some people have access to secrets and other people don't have access to secrets. And Daniel Ellsberg actually had access to a lot of these secrets in the 1960s, uh, but then he lost the access to the secrets. And he actually he had a whole bunch of secrets specifically attaining to nuclear weapons aside from the Pentagon Papers, and he kept them in a box in his in his like front yard or something like that, and then a storm came and destroyed them all. So he actually lost all this access to it. Uh, what, what's your thought on these kind of security clearances and how that has developed into our doomsday machine that we now have? Yeah, well, I thought it was interesting that um, the, the book talks at length about uh, how, at least during the 60s, the Joint Chiefs... Uh, kept a lot of the information about our nuclear war plans away from the president and the mm. secretary of defense. Mm. Um, and that they had actually, the, the I guess he calls it the JSCAPS is the acronym, uh, which is like the general nuclear war plan for the United States against at the time the Soviet Union, the Soviet Sinoblocks, so the Soviet Union and China. Um, the Joint Chiefs had made it 
uh, had basically had put down a rule that no one could refer to the JSCAPs in the presence of the Secretary of Defense or the President because they never wanted to be asked about it. Uh-huh. And the Secretary of Defense at one point requests to see it, and the Joint Chiefs refuse. <laughs> uh, so it's like it's interesting how. Uh, I mean, the Joint Chiefs being the highest-ranking military officers that are non-civilians, right? Mm. And the President and the Defense Secretary being the two highest-ranking civilian, like, Mm. oversight parts to the military, that there was, like, this tension, and maybe there still is this tension between, uh, at least as concerns nuclear war plans, like, the military control over our nuclear war plans versus the President. Mm. Uh, There's, like, this great quote from uh, Curtis LeMay, Who's like this famous warmonger? Uh, he was head of the uh, Strategic Air Command, and then I think he was head of the Joint Chiefs at one point. Um, when they were asking, he was being interviewed about uh, if there was an imminent strike on the U.S. and he couldn't get a hold of the president. You know, would he launch or give authority to launch? And his response was he wasn't even sure if he could get a hold of the president if it made sense to contact the president. Um, which is, you know, I think it's... The whole book is terrifying. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's interesting in that the common perception for American citizens is that the president is the only one who controls the mm. nuclear arsenal, which we know is not true. Mm. Um, and even more than that, that the military would want to defer to him, which mm. it seems is maybe not true, or at least wasn't at the time. Mm. And yeah, and that whole idea of a nuclear football just doesn't exist. Like there is no nuclear football, and it's purely a, a, a dramatic play. And it happens in the so in the state of the union or in the switch off from one president to the next. They very dramatically have this guy with the nuclear football look from one president who's the standing president, and all of a sudden, once they've switched, then he he switches his gaze towards the new president, and it's like this whole, like, okay, now we have this new president who's in charge of the nuclear weapons, and everybody believes that this guy is the only one who can launch nuclear war. But in fact, there's hundreds of people who can all start a nuclear war on both sides. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, theoretically, I'm sure there's something pertaining to nuclear war in the briefcase, (laughs) but it certainly is not uh, necessary, or the only way. To launch a nuclear war. Yeah. 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 And you brought, you brought up another interesting point, which is that in the 1960s, we, we viewed China and Russia as equally a threat and allied together against the U.S. because they're both communist. But in fact, they had both split off of another nuclear issue, which was that China wanted nuclear weapons from Russia uh, to be used for this crisis that they had, the Kamoi crisis. Uh, so they were split. They were, they were different countries who had different aims, yet... Our nuclear planning basically planned to wipe out both of them in, in response to anything that happened, yeah. uh, which is a really interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, is, so Ellsberg was a, a nuclear war planner, or he participated in the planning. And what I thought was interesting and something I certainly would not have assumed was the case is that our plans in the 50s and 60s, and maybe to this day, didn't really contemplate ever having a limited nuclear war. The mm. plan was... If we're ever engaged in any sort of armed conflict with the Soviet Union, uh, which is, he goes at length into the definition about what that is, and I think it's like anything more than like a division sort of engaging, uh, that we launch a full-scale nuclear assault. And that full-scale nuclear assault was like 4,000 nuclear weapons at the time or something, uh, which would have precipitated a full-scale retaliation. And the full-scale assault was against the Chinese and the Soviets, Mm. even if the Chinese had nothing to do with it. Yeah. and what's interesting is at the time, the climate modeling wasn't sophisticated enough. But 
what has come out since is the this, the idea of nuclear winter, mm. which is to say that something as small as like a thousand megaton exchange, which granted is not small. Mm. You know, I think Hiroshima was like ten kilotons, mm. so we're talking about like what a three orders of magnitude larger than a Hiroshima exchange, but um, is not nearly the size of like an all-out nuclear war between great powers would be. It would cause this thing called nuclear winter, right? So enough enough ash gets into the upper atmosphere from burning cities that up to 98% of solar radiation gets blocked mm-hmm. before it touches the surface of the Earth. Um, and so it's like nuclear winter isn't like the opposite of global warming where there's like it's two or three degrees colder. Nuclear winter is like 40 to 60 degrees colder Whoa. and it lasts for a decade. Uh-huh. So we're ta- like literally talking about the extinction of all life on Earth. Except for maybe cockroaches or something. Ex- yeah, and like yeah. extremophiles and things that live deep in the oceans. Mm. Uh, but any like advanced surface life, I mean, it's mm. gone. It's gone. Yeah. There's no agriculture for 10 years, right? Nothing mm. can survive on the surface. No solar energy works. I mean, mm. maybe some humans would survive in like the seed vault mm. in like... Nordic. The Nordics, where yeah. they've got geothermal energy, uh, uh, but it's it's bleak. It's done. Yeah. And the, another interesting part of that was that this the South America that a lot of people thought that maybe South America would be stopped, but in, in fact that upper atmosphere it would eventually get to South America as well, and the whole world would be would be would be very cold. Right. Um, that's really interesting. And so in terms of like, it's a very timely book because of what's going on in India and Pakistan right now. And I've been reading some stuff about India and Pakistan, and and a lot of people think, oh no, it'll just be located. Any fallout or any issues from nuclear weapons will just be located in India and Pakistan. But that's not true. If India and Pakistan decide to have nuclear war and have a couple thermonuclear weapons thrown at each other, it affects the whole globe. Like immediate effects would would be all over Middle East and Southeast Asia and places like that. But like what you're talking about, this kind of atmospheric stuff would affect the whole whole entire planet. Yeah, um, and it. I would assume that like uh, a nuclear war between India and Pakistan probably would not involve a thousand megaton exchange mm. of weapons. Are you talking about a thousand individual nuclear weapons or or thousand megatons total? Total. All right. Total. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for the most part, the U.S. and the Soviet now Russian arsenals, they're like the most advanced missiles are multiple reentry vehicle missiles where each vehicle is like a one megaton mm. thing. So like one missile might have like five megatons on it as like five different one megaton packages. Mm. But I'm not an expert. Um, I think it would, like a, a war between India and Pakistan, I would assume would be smaller than that. Mm. Uh, but still, I'm sure large enough to dramatically reduce world temperatures cut agricultural production, mm. lead to famine, starvation. Mm. Uh, it's no joke. Mm. Yeah. Another interesting part about this book was talking about um, how this idea of bombing entire cities came about. Because back in the 1920s and 1910s, it mil- war was considered to be only something that military professionals did. Um, and then somewhere around the time that FDR came about, and then uh, Churchill and the Germans started to bomb Britain and they started to target accidentally, at first they started to accidentally target civilians. And then the British responded by actually making it a specific plan to start attacking German citizens because the idea was that in order to end a war quickly, you have to make it brutal um, because then the population will put pressure on the, on, the, on the government to end the war. 
Uh, and so you have to make it as brutal as possible, as quickly as possible, if you want to win the war quickly. And then that was just with bombers. And then another theme came into it, which was essentially bombers. We thought that bombers would be high precision, that we could actually bomb factories, bomb industrial bases accurately. Turns out that that's not the case. Uh, we can't bomb accurately. Even today, it's not really sure how, how accurately we can, we can bomb. Uh, and so then it went from high precision bombing to night bombing, let's just bomb the entire city, uh, kill as many people as possible so that they put pressure on the politicians. Uh, and then the nuclear weapon was, in, was invented. And then instead of 300 different planes firing tons of nuclear or tons of firebombs, you could have one plane come in and hit one city and then done. So it's essentially nuclear weapons were a more effective way to do what they had already started to do in World War II. Yeah. Is that true? What do you think of that? I mean, it seems to be true, right? Mm -hmm. um, I know that the, you know, there's this like, great anecdote from World War One and trench warfare where I think it was, uh, it was like a Christmas truce where the soldiers on both sides came out of the ditch and like had a party one night and then went, went back to their separate ways. They viewed each other as human beings, right? And I think that, I can't remember what war it was, but there was a study, might have been the Vietnam War or the Korean War, so this would be post-World War II, where they looked at like how many bullets were actually hitting mm. uh, opposing troops. And it was like some, I mean, bullets are not all that accurate, right? I mean, you're like spraying a machine gun into like a jungle and you don't hit a lot of people. But in the study, they actually determined that a lot of the soldiers were shooting over their enemies' heads intentionally. They weren't right. trying to hit their enemies. And so that led to sort of psychological warfare and psychological indoctrination of our troops to help break down our troops' view of the opposition as humans, right? So like creating like an evil external other, which obviously a lot of that happened in World War II as well. Mm. But like humans aren't like cut out to kill other humans, right? For the, for the most part. Most for of nationalistic us, reasons. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, we're not like hardwired to kill other people okay. right like mm -hmm. generally speaking and so you have to like break down uh, your opponent's humanity to get your soldiers to like effectively kill but you don't really have to do that with nuclear weapons mm -hmm. because you just have one it's just a missile mm -hmm. right just mm -hmm. you hit a button at a screen and mm -hmm. you can kill millions of people on mm -hmm. the other end um and it certainly seems like so that's the far extreme is nuclear weapons but you know bombing it's like a relatively easy step uh, down to bomb a city because you don't have to look at anybody. You mm. just you're yeah. in a plane ten thousand feet above their head, uh, right? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So it, it's essentially a new step in the demoralization of the enemy that you can you you don't even need to look at your enemy in the face. You can just bomb them basically. Right. I mean, bombing was ten thousand feet. You, you saw the city and maybe you could see people running around or cars. Mm. So like, there's some like human connection there. Mm. But then if you are you know, an air forceman sitting in a, you know, Minuteman uh, missile silo in Nebraska, you don't see anybody, right? All you mm. see is a screen in front of you that has a button that mm. you push to launch a missile that can mm. kill millions of people. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, really, really far abstracted. You know, like, drone pilots today, right? Like, we bomb terrorists or shoot missiles at terrorists or who we presume to be terrorists. Uh, but those drone pilots, at least, they, they have a video feed, so they see that there's humans on the other end, and so like there's still this human connection. Um, but with pre-programmed nuclear weapons, it's like, yeah, you just press a button. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's as far removed as you can possibly be from the actual act of killing. Hmm. So what was the most important thing that you learned from this book? Yeah. 
It's <coughs> a good. It's qu- <coughs> a good question. <coughs> I think it was learning uh, about. Uh, well, I, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. He talks a lot about his role in the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close things came. Uh, and he highlights a couple incidents during the crisis that almost led to nuclear war. And I think what I learned was how how light of a hair trigger we have for our nuclear arsenals, how poorly they, at least at the time, were targeted. Like this, they were not surgical; they were targeted at ending a nation. Uh, and probably ending all of human civilization, and how close we actually came to that, and so how lucky we are today. But it's also terrifying because uh, it's hard to say what the actual posture is today and what would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I mean, one of the things he talks about during the Cuban Missile Crisis is this scenario where there were four Soviet subs that were being harassed by U.S. ships during the blockade around Cuba, and. Uh, the U.S. was dropping depth charges that had low-level explosives that weren't designed to damage the Soviets, but to get them to surface. But the Soviets hadn't been able to reach Moscow from below the surface and thought that they were being attacked. And on one of the subs, the captain ordered the launching of a nuclear torpedo. That order has to be backed up by the political officer, who on this particular sub agreed to fire the nuclear torpedo. Very randomly, this sub had a third officer on it who was like a nu- who's like in the nuclear chain of command. And so on this sub, he also had to consent to the launching of the torpedo. That third officer refused, and so the torpedo wasn't launched. The other three subs only had two officers, just a captain and a political officer. So if any of the other subs had chosen to launch the torpedo, the torpedo would have been launched. Mm-hmm. It was only this one sub where it wasn't launched. If the torpedo had been launched, the U.S. would have lost a carrier group and would have thought that the Soviets had authorized the use of nuclear weapons to destroy a carrier group. And we, given our doctrine, it would have started the end of the world. Mm. Um, and so we literally came down to just one guy's decision mm. to not launch mm. um, in the face of orders to launch. It, is, it was so interesting. Uh, some the thing that I remember from that as well was that the the submarines were actually meant for Arctic to be in the Arctic, so they were meant for cold water. And this was in the Caribbean, so it was hot water. So it was like 140 degrees inside of these submarines. Like people had to go into the into the actual missile launcher in order to cool down because it was refrigerated. Because people were like, you know, so this is. And then you have American ships dropping grenades on you as well. So you're like. It just must have been incredibly stressful and so close to, to, to starting this, what you, what you just said. And yeah. then, yeah, another, another interesting thing about that was also that Ellsberg himself wasn't scared during that night. The night where the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, he wasn't scared. He was like, no, we're not close to war. But then he later found out what had hap- actually happened with, between Kennedy and Khrushchev and found out that, oh, shit, like it, it was really close to, to happening. Do you remember that? Uh, I don't remember... That vignette. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember that he thought that everything was going to work out okay because both Kennedy and Khrushchev were committed to not going to war yeah, over yeah, missiles yeah. in Cuba. Yeah. Um, but through like a series of like unfortunate events, like it, we got very close to war, even though both leaders didn't want it. Mm. That that was the biggest thing. One of the biggest things I learned was that the difference between policy, stated policy, and then actual what the presidents thought and wrote and stuff like that. Both. Khrushchev and Kennedy 
didn't want. They were both very afraid of nuclear winter, <clears throat> nuclear nuclear war. Uh, yet both of them outwardly were saying, "No, we will we will totally wipe you guys out off the face of the planet because it's all threat based." And that was a really another interesting point that Daniel Ellsberg brought in was that nuclear. We have this idea that nuclear weapons are not used, but they are in fact used every every day in the same way that somebody who buys a gun and doesn't use it uses that gun to get what they want because the the real purpose of the gun is the threat that it can be fired, not that it is actually fired. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and what uh, you mentioned that reading this book was in some way related to your investment um, ideas. How has it impacted your investment criteria or, or things? Is there any possible company that, that you see coming out of this? Uh, no, that's a good question. Um, this book in particular has less like day-to-day -day bearing on, on what we might invest in. Although um, it has got me thinking about, you know, ways to push non-proliferation or, you know, nuclear disarmament forward. Um, I am not a nuclear war planner, mm. so that's a caveat. But it does seem like, you know, we're in an age right now where we're talking about modernizing the nuclear arsenal, right? Um, and Russia is talking about modernizing its nuclear arsenal. And we might be on the cusp of the next, like, great arms race between, you know, Russia and the U.S. And it seems to me like we should have a policy of, no first use, I think, is a very reasonable policy, but it's not one the U.S. has. So we won't take nuclear the first use of nuclear weapons off the table. Um, I think we should as a country. Uh, we still need nuclear weapons as a deterrent. I mean, nuclear weapons haven't been used since Hiroshima, at least actively used, right, in terms of, like, deployed since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and part of the reason for that probably is because of this idea of mutually assured destruction. The question is, do we need, you know, hundreds of Minutemen missile silos across the U.S. and the cost of upkeep there and the hair trigger alert? Do we need, you know, strategic bombers that can drop, you know, 20 kiloton or 20 megaton warheads on top of opponents? Um, do we need thousands of those being stored all over the country and maintained uh, with many, many pilots having access to them and potentially the codes to arm them, right? So do we need all of those fingers on the button? Um, and to me, it seems like the answer is no. Like, you know, the nuclear triad, right? The nuclear deterrence triad is ground-based nuclear missiles, it's strategic bombers, and it's nuclear submarines. Mm. And it certainly feels like with a dozen ground-based missile silos with multiple reentry vehicles and, you know, a few strategic bombers and a full complement of strategic you know, nuclear submarines, we could probably accomplish deterrence. Mm -hmm. um, submarines are designed to be hard to locate. They're mobile. You can load them up with lots of missiles. Mm -hmm. The people who are manning nuclear submarines are the best of the best. They undergo rigorous psychological training, as you would imagine, because they're under the ocean for long periods of time. It, it feels to me like we could get to the U.S. down to a few hundred nuclear warheads, mm -hmm. Most of them being, you know, sub-launched warheads, and maintain our um, strategic deterrence. And we would live in a much safer world if we did that, especially if we could get the other great powers to follow suit. Um, and that seems reasonable. I mean, our economy is much larger than Russia's, and we shouldn't be investing hundreds of billions of dollars in modernizing our nuclear forces. And Russia shouldn't be either. Um, and that's that's always the question that sparks all of these kind of buildups: is that 
but if we don't do it, they will, and then they'll have an upper advantage, basically. But you think that it's not too big of an idea that we could get Russia to say stop proliferation as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's room for cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not with Donald Trump, because I don't think he's rational enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another interesting point that Ellsberg brought up, was that uh, Donald Trump doesn't believe in the advanced climate models that predict nuclear winter. So, But this is could be just public policy. He might actually believe something different. Uh, uh, but yeah, he, he doesn't believe in the advanced climate models which predict a nuclear winter, so he, can't re- he doesn't really have any much to say about nuclear nuclear winter happening and stuff like that yeah yeah I, it's I mean, one of the things he raises in, in the book which i think is an interesting question for everyone to think about is you know because nuclear the use of nuclear weapons can cause nuclear winter like let's not let's say it's not even as extreme as 40 degrees and extinction of the human race let's just say that it's five degrees or 10 degrees which is pretty substantial when you're talking about climate change like probably enough to like kick off glaciation. Um, it's definitely enough to cause hundreds of millions of people to starve mm-hmm. around the globe, right? I mean, you reduce 10% of the sun reaching the surface of the earth, like crop yields go down, crops fail in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it messes with like the hydrological cycle. So you don't get, you get droughts in some places and monsoons and others. It would just, agriculturally, we'd be devastated for years. Uh, and a lot of the population of the earth would starve. So you have a lot of countries in the world who have the capability of killing hundreds of millions or causing the extinction of the human race. Uh, like, it's not just the current surviving people, it's like all of the progeny of the human race. It's a really weighty thing to think about. Not that killing a single human isn't weighty, but um, you know these are individuals who have the ability to extinguish a race mm. right which is interesting and this is species this is something about the book that caught me on uh, caught me off guard was that i have a basic trust in the government parts of the government to do the rational things that keep us protected and stuff like that but then reading this book and reading some of the characters that uh ellsberg describes i've come to lose faith in at least part of this this branch that's doing this this military planning because their ideas of what could happen is so far-fetched and so crazy and they're willing to like to blow up the planet uh because they're worried about the russians uh getting you know uh getting missiles in cuba or something like that uh right and so this after reading this book what is your take on government in general or government's ability to make decisions uh with regards to nuclear weapons in general, I think the presidents have made wise decisions mm-hmm. with regard to nuclear weapons, given the context of the times that they were in. So, like Eisenhower delegated authority, and he was probably one of the more hawkish presidents about the use of nuclear weapons, but it was before we knew a lot about the effects of nuclear winter, for instance, and was also like coming out of World War II, engaging with the Soviet Union. The nuclear arsenals were much smaller. So for him, it made a lot of sense. You know, I think, you know, Clinton's been very rational. The, the two Bushes, well, certainly the Bush elder, very rational people, right? Uh, maybe a little bit hawkish, but making smart decisions. Um, but it does seem like you know, Curtis LeMay mm-hmm. features a lot in the book and others like him were maybe more willing to use the weapons than we'd want. Um, 
I don't know. I, there's like this interesting question, right? Like if you were in a, if you were the president and you were sitting in the Oval Office and you believe that there was a full first strike happening on the United States, and let's say it's 300 missiles. So the 300 largest cities in the U.S. are gone. So effectively the United States will cease as a nation, right? Mm-hmm. Industrial base destroyed. Um, most of the population would die by fallout. Mm-hmm. Do you order a counter-strike because you want retribution mm-hmm. or a counter-strike for some sort of deterrence, even though what are you deterring from at this point? Um, do you order that or do you let the missiles hit you because you have a greater uh, appreciation for the human mm-hmm. species, right? Like better that we be destroyed but the human race lives on, then like we retaliate and exterminate all life on earth. Mm. Um, and I would like to think that most presidents would opt for not striking. Mm. Uh, but that obviously undermines the whole purpose of deterrence, right? Mm. They have to believe you're willing to strike. Mm. Um, I think the book covers it. Mm. But there, there's been an in, there was an incident where, uh, I believe on both the Soviet side and the U.S. side, we've had similar incidents where our like automated like nuclear detection systems have detected launches, mm. um, and someone in a missile silo has been confronted with just that scenario or that that question, um, and I think it was in the Russian case they had installed a new missile detection system that failed and had a false positive and had determined that the U.S. had launched a full nuclear strike. Mm. And they ran the analysis again, and it looked like a full nuclear strike. And at that point, the person manning the quote-unquote button was supposed to launch, mm-hmm. or at least call his superiors who would have ordered a launch. And he opted instead to say that it was a glitch, even mm-hmm. though there was nothing technically showing it to be a glitch. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened on both the Russian and the U.S. side more than once during the Cold War. Um and crisis was averted because, like, someone made the decision not to retaliate or mm. to wait, mm. right? But any one of those people at any time could have said, "We yeah, have to, way. we yeah. have to retaliate." Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, just to just to finish up, what are you going to read next? And do you have a new kind of cohort uh, that you're aiming for, or do you have more books in this apocalyptic theme? Uh, no, that the apocalyptic thing has been resolved. I went through all those books. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the next cohort's going to be. I think it's going to be in uh, biology and synthetic biology and maybe ag. But, like, so sticking towards, like, climate uh, and, like, the biology side of that Mm. is where I'm going next, synthetic biology. Mm. Um, The book I'm reading right now is called Why We Gather Mm. and is, I think the title says it all. It's about, like, why people get together and how to host effective good events um, and help people draw connections that sounds really interesting um, i have a question just loosely based on this why how does how does reading help you make make, make you become a better investor sure yeah um well i think it's really important to do long form reading so not just blog posts right um and to dive into subjects that you know a little bit about but don't know a lot about and i think it's important to read the perspective of multiple authors on those subjects so it's it's important for me in terms of like, A, it's like just good substantive knowledge, right? Uh, but B, like it helps open up my mind to think about things that I would never otherwise think about. And I think it 
keeps me open-minded when I then meet with founders who are working in a space, right? Mm -hmm. So they say, oh, I'm doing this thing. And I can say, oh, well, I have these five books I've read that have some touch point on that, some relevance. And it gives me a different perspective, right, mm -hmm. when I'm talking with founders. Um, so, plus I enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I read a lot of sci-fi for that too, right? Uh -huh. Like, uh, if you think about, like, what the job of a science fiction author is, especially when he's writing near-term science fiction, it is to look at the trends that they see in the world today and extrapolate from them and then build a new world mm -hmm. with interesting things that are being bought and sold and new ways for humans to interact with one another. Um, so their job is effectively to be a VC. They just don't have money to deploy. So reading those books is a great way to think about what the future mm. is about to look like. Mm. Have you read Cyberpunk? Or, or are you into Cyberpunk books like Neil Diamond or William Gibson? I've, I've read Snow, Snow Crash for okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm currently reading uh, Diamond Age. Oh, okay, yeah. That was a hard one. Or that is a hard one, yeah. <laughs> it's a great one. Yeah. It's really good. Uh -huh. um, Snow Crash obviously is a classic. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I read all kinds of sci-fi. Elliot Pepper is great. Mm. Uh, he's a, an Oakland uh, native, so he's kind of... He folds in the East Bay and... San Francisco a little bit into his books, which is kind of fun. I had him on my other show, Crazy Wisdom. Did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's an awesome guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. I read I read a ton of sci-fi. And then, of course, I read, like, you know, the occasional just trash sci-fi book that's yeah. just fun space uh -huh. opera stuff. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, how can people find you to learn more about what you're reading, learn more about your companies, and learn more about you? Yeah. Uh, well, on Twitter, I'm at RunVC. Um, our website is alphabridge.vc. Uh, and the founder wellness program we run is uh, atlasq.com. Uh, so I'm in all of those places. But the easiest is probably Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. I respond to people who shoot me DMs or reply to me. Uh, and I talk about the books that I'm reading there too. So Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, man. It's been yeah. great.